to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are really lucky to be joined by George Turner, who is the executive director of Tax Watch UK. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Talk to me a little bit about what Tax Watch UK does, please. So Tax Watch UK, uh, we're, a, we're a kind of idiosyncratic organization, I guess. We, we describe ourselves as an investigative think tank. So what we do is we go out and we try and find out information and facts about what is going on in the world of tax. Um, we're very much interested in what's happening in the real world and how companies and individuals are using or abusing the tax system um, in reality uh, rather than uh, theoretical debates about legislation or or uh, how tax should work and then we try and use that information to promote a better understanding of um, how the tax system works um, and I guess our purpose is to make sure that people comply better with the law and there's public pressure um, put on government to take more action against people who aren't complying properly with the law and how and um, other companies perhaps are uh, see there's some scrutiny of their actions they might mm. think twice about um, engaging in some sort of activities which are not correct um, that's what we do yeah so we, we kind of investigate the tax world and then and then try and publish reports to um, educate great so one of the reports that you published well you've got so many i'd like to talk about but maybe let's start with what you found in the pandora papers and and i guess first things first is let's talk about what the pandora papers were and then how they shed light on the uk property market so tell us a little bit about what the pandora papers were and then and then what they showed us about how the wealthy are are trading high value property so the Pandora Papers is kind of is the latest in the series of leaks from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They seem to have kind of carved themselves out a niche in being a receptacle of large data dumps from uh, unknown and mysterious characters um, who seem to be very adept at prizing information, large amounts of information out of um, various offshore service providers. Uh, I think I saw it was uh, 11 million or 11.4 million documents uh, this time. And and different from some of the other leaks they've had, which have been kind of from particular companies. So, um, you know, famously, the um, Panama Papers were from a company called Mossack Fonseca. uh, And then the Paradise Papers, I think, were mostly from a company called Appleby. Um, this came from um, a variety of different corporate service providers and law firms and so on, which is why it's a much bigger leak of information than previously. Now, a lot of the information in there, I mean, from a UK perspective, at least, um, seems to be about um, the holding of property. So, and, and also there were stories about the states as well. I think there was um, the King of Jordan was revealed to be holding property, uh, I think in Florida. Um, it might have been in California. I know, I know they're on different, complete, different ends of the continent, but I can't remember which one. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so, so it's about holding property. And it's, it's a very common technique that, um, particularly in countries where there is public registries of land ownership, 
that rather than owning a property directly and therefore entering your name on the register, you put the ownership of the property into a company. So the company owns uh, a, uh, the property rather than an individual. Uh, and then that company can be based somewhere where there's very low requirements on disclosure. Uh, and so that no one actually ends up knowing who owns the property. And, and that has various, um, various advantages for the people that want to do that. So it, it's not just about tax. So for example, if um, there were certain government employees of certain countries or, or ministers or, or senior civil servants that owned very high value properties. And if that was well known that they own that very high value property, people might ask how on a government salary they have afforded uh, um, a $8 million penthouse in Malibu. Um, so that secrecy provides that, uh, you know, can be a cover for corruption. In the UK context, um, it has been a very common technique to avoid stamp duty, which is a, a which is a kind of property transaction tax. So, if you buy or sell a property in the UK, then the buyer um, pays stamp duty, which is charged as a proportion, a, a small percentage of the total value of the transaction. And so the kind of argument runs that if instead of selling a property, what you do is you put the property into the ownership of a company. And then instead of selling the property, you sell the shares in the company. You then transfer the property because what you're doing is you're transferring ownership of the company and all the company does is own property. It doesn't do anything else. The new shareholders, it will be an individual probably, will control the company and therefore the property, but the legal ownership of the property has not changed. The legal ownership remains with the company. Only the ownership of the company has changed. And that is an uh, argument that some tax advisors use to say that you don't need to pay stamp duty because there's been no property transaction. The transaction is just in the shares. Wow. So you will set up a company, say, in the British Virgin Islands. You will buy property with the company. You will sell me shares of the company rather than the property. I now own shares in the company. I also own the property, but nobody knows that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, technically speaking, the company owns the property. So that's that's the trick. I see. Is that because the, the property doesn't actually officially change ownership or legally change ownership. I see. Not deemed to be a, a property transaction. And this kind of technique has become so widespread uh, and so uh, such common practice that when the, um, when the, um, uh, the Pandora Papers landed, there was this kind of instant commentary from the tax advisory community, which was like, this is just all legal. I don't see what the big fuss is about. It was kind of like everyone mm -hmm. knows this happens. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been going on for years. This is not news. Um, and you know, in some ways trying to undermine the public interest in the journalism uh, in the sense that, you know, why are they bothering to report on this stuff? Everyone knows that it happens and this is all legal. And, and then some tax advisors going as far as to say, that, you know, this is government policy. Government, uh, the government has known about this for many years. 
if the government wanted to tax these transactions, it could easily by just changing the law. Uh, and therefore, uh, the fact that it hasn't changed the law shows that actually the government is very happy with this system. And there are good commercial reasons why you would want to exempt these kinds of transactions from tax. So I mean, I started looking into this because I just thought to myself, it's just, it didn't seem uh, right if you follow the logic of it. Um, if you follow the logic of what the tax advisory profession was saying in reaction to these stories, is that the government is happy for a kind of parallel property system to exist. Because, you know, no one who's buying like a, a, a street property to live in with their family is doing so through an offshore company. That, that doesn't really happen. Um, these properties that are traded through companies are being traded by people who are well advised, who hire professional advisors and accountants and lawyers to act on their behalf. The properties are high value transactions. And then for various reasons in the UK, they tend to be commercial properties rather than um, rather than residential properties um, for reasons I'll come on to. And so essentially would, what, what this argument was saying is that, you know, the government has set up a system where, you know, ordinary middle class people who are buying property to live in uh, have to register their name on a public register and pay uh, transaction taxes, but they're happy for there to be this parallel system where the rich and the wealthy trade companies um, without paying any taxes. So like you and I pay stamp duty, the rich pay, you know, the, or the you and I trade in property, the rich mm -hmm. trade in shares in property owning companies. Mm -hmm. And that didn't really make any sense to me. I mean, I think you have to be kind of quite a radical conspiracy theorist, uh, either on the, on the hard right or the hard left, <laughs> to believe that the government would, would do such a thing. Um, you know, you could say they're, they're incompetent, but, you know, some of the commentary is that this was all purposeful. So I decided to look back at, um, you know, how this law had developed over time and, and why we'd got into the situation we were and how stamp duty had changed over time. And, and what I found is that basically for the last 40 years, the government has been trying to clamp down on these kinds of transactions. Mm -hmm. um, the government first instituted legislation to stop these kinds of transactions in 1967. Um, and, and what was happening was you know stamp duty you is one of the oldest taxes uh that exists uh, um i believe it, it played a part in the in the american revolution so it's, it's it's in the uk i think it came in around 1640 and it was all around the stamping of physical documents so you and some countries still do this you have to kind of buy a, a stamp in order to, from the government to, to affix to a document in order for that document to be legally effective. Uh, and so in the UK, that used to be the case. You used to have these kind of documents. And one of those documents that required a stamp was um, land registration. So if you wanted to change land registration, you needed to get an official stamp. You had to pay for that stamp and that, that was stamp duty. And what you had was a situation where people would easily get around that tax by simply, you know, avoiding registering land, uh, or they would avoid somehow 
the requirement to get this stamp by having kind of side agreements which gave them ownership of the property but then without needing to register it and all this kind of stuff uh, and then the government kind of looked into this and saw that they, they were losing tons of money i mean 750 million pounds a year which in in when they were doing this reforms was um you know almost 20 years ago was a lot of money uh, i mean it still is a lot of money but you know even more back then uh, and so they decided to completely overhaul the system of how these stamp taxes were um, charged for the purposes of property transactions. Uh, and what they did is they introduced this law, which was very general in application. I mean, it, it, it basically says stamp duty land tax is a tax on land transactions. And then it defines land transactions in the broadest possible sense, which is basically the acquisition of any interest in land. Um, it says that these transactions can be affected by a legal instrument or not by a legal instrument, wherever they're affected in the world. So, you know, you can't just fly to the Cayman Islands and do the deal there and therefore it's out of the tax. You know, incredibly broad uh, definition of how these taxes should be uh, applied. And the reason why governments do that is because they want to stop lawyers and tax advisors playing these games where they try and find some loophole in the legislation where they get around it by saying, oh, you didn't quite specify this or you specified it in this way, so I'm gonna do it in a slightly different way mm -hmm. or so on. So, so the way the governments try and stop that behavior is to create this legislation, which is kind of very broad in application, which, which defines terms uh, in a broad sense. And so it seemed to me this idea that you could just simply stick a, a, a property in a company and trade it, at the very least was going against the spirit of these reforms. Right, right. You know, it was quite clear that when these reforms were put in place, there were debates in parliament where, you know, government ministers were saying that, you know, we are intending to, this thing where you use a company, they're called special purpose vehicles because they're set up just for a particular company that's set up for a special purpose. Um, you know, there's, there's government ministers saying, you know, we make no apology for tackling the abuse of special purpose vehicles. Mm -hmm. it, clearly the government thought that they were trying to uh, tackle this issue. So this then becomes not a matter of government policy, whether government policy exempts these kinds of transactions from taking place. But the question is, is there some problem with the way that legislation was put in place? Are there, is there some defect in the way it works, which means that, you know, these, those are kind of effectively a loophole or something like that? Or is it that the tax advisory profession just ignored the intention of the government and just carried on doing what they always were doing? which was to try and get round taxes uh, on behalf of their clients, um, simply by kind of wishful thinking about what the legislation really means, uh, or what they think the legislation means, rather than what it really means, and then hoping that no one gets caught. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the history of these measures, that it's, it's often to do with the, the latter rather than the former, and it's really an enforcement problem rather than a legislative problem. And that's not to say that, you know, new legislation can't come in place to really kind of make these things abundantly clear. Um, the problem with that is that 
when you do that often you kind of you change the law and then you wipe away the sins of the past because everyone says oh you look they changed the law and therefore it wasn't illegal before often governments change the law to make things clearer but that doesn't mean that what they're doing is fundamentally changing the underlying legal position of things so i feel like i've rambled on quite a no lot. not at all it's very clear what you're saying i guess <laughs> No, I guess it just begs the question, what's the problem? What's holding back the enforcement? Well, yes. Well, that's an interesting and complicated question. So what's holding back the enforcement of these things? Well, basically, um, this, well, generally with tax avoidance uh, in the UK, uh, it's treated as an issue between the taxpayer, uh, i.e. the person or, or the tax non-payer in the face of an avoidance scheme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and the government. And what happens is the, the taxpayer files a tax return and they will um, under-declare their income because they're using some scheme or they might over-declare costs or something like that. And the government will um, you know, look at that return and say, okay, we're, we're changing, we are, we don't believe this time is right, so we want to make an adjustment. I think the process works very similar in the States. And that process is kind of, there's almost an, an implicit assumption that everyone is acting in good faith and that the taxpayer may have put the wrong figures in, but they did so because they genuinely believe that they were doing the right thing. And this is a process just about finding the right answer. Um, the the role of the tax advisors who has who have advised um the taxpayer to put in the wrong figures on the basis of a scheme they created is almost entirely absent from this process uh, and never therefore comes under any scrutiny and that also means that you know this kind of obsessive process means that there's an incentive in in trying it on um because Sometimes you may slip through the net, you may never be audited, and therefore the position that you put on your on your tax returns remains because it's just never checked. Uh, and that's particularly, uh, you know, that becomes more and more of an issue as, as governments have cut resources to tax authorities, which has been a phenomenon that's uh, been a global uh, phenomenon uh, in the age of austerity. Uh, and also why in the States, uh, President Biden has you know, committed to large increases in the capacity of the IRS. And then because this is this kind of seen as a somewhat kind of neutral process in terms of trying to find the correct answer, a kind of gentlemanly process to a certain extent, then pretty much the worst that can happen is that you just pay the taxes that you were going to pay anyway. Uh, you might mm. have a small late penalty late filing penalty or, or interest payment that you need to pay because of the lateness of the payments. But as long as you put together a credible argument that you were trying to do the right thing, often what you what just happens is you, you pay the taxes that were due anyway. So, um, so there's a kind of big upsize and not, and not much downside. Um, but, you know, our view is that what needs much greater scrutiny is um, the the honesty, frankly, of the um, people who act as tax advisors uh, and whether they their interpretation of tax law is one that is honest or one that is driven by um, essentially exploiting people's greed 
by selling them uh, an interpretation of the law that doesn't hold much uh, scrutiny. How might we hold these tax professionals accountable? Well, you need to start locking a few up for tax fraud, I think, is the, mm -hmm. is the blunt answer. Uh, and that is something where the United States government has actually been you know, relatively much more successful than other governments. Um, you, you see much more frequently criminal proceedings being brought by the Department of Justice uh, against companies that advise people on um, tax avoidance schemes or as that I think they're more frequently called in the states tax shelters. Um, why that happens in the states, I don't know, more. Than <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you think that some of this has to do with cultural attitudes towards paying taxes? I mean, I, I'm thinking about, I used to live in, in Italy, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but even my close acquaintances there, you know, had a dim view of paying taxes. And I'm wondering if you find that in places where there's more enforcement, the public maybe doesn't celebrate tax day, but at least understands that taxes are going to generally good purposes. And then maybe in places where there's more avoidance, it's not the case. I mean, I don't know. Maybe yeah, I'm there's, there's a whole literature around, uh, uh, it's called, um, well, voluntary compliance is, is one way of looking at it, but uh, tax, uh, oh, I've forgotten the term for it, but there's there's a whole kind of academic and mm -hmm. research literature around um, how people feel towards paying their taxes and whether um, how they view the government and performance of the government, etc., cetera, um, makes them happier to, to pay their taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think, you know, it works both ways, you know, where there's, uh, stricter enforcement, then people probably care a lot more about what happens to their money once it goes into the government coffers, um, would probably be more engaged in the democratic process as a result. So, I mean, yeah, Italy has a, has a whole number. I mean, Italy, tax enforcement is fairly harsh as well. Uh, for, for people that are caught, um, there's some fairly, fairly heavy penalties. But um, I used to live in Italy too, and, and with a lot of things in Italy, there's, it's, it's this kind of paradox between there's very heavy penalties for people who fall foul of the law, but then people still kind of ignore it anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember there were these things when I was there, they had, every business was obliged to give you a receipt. You had to take the receipt. And then there were these finance police who would come out as you left the ice cream shop or whatever it was, and they would check that you had your receipt, just making sure that the, um, the people inside the shop were ringing up your purchase on the register. So of course that they would pay taxes and you see these finance police cars driving around everywhere. And so you're right, there, there seemed to be an emphasis on enforcement and yet people were, were still somehow ducking their, their taxes. I'm curious because you mentioned in your article, the, Brid the British Virgin Islands as a place where you might set up one of these companies. What other places on the map act as tax havens and why, how do they exist? So, that, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about tax havens is that essentially anywhere can be a tax haven for somewhere else. Uh, what people are trying to do when they uh, structure uh, transactions to avoid or evade taxes is, is to basically exploit differences in legislation uh, between different jurisdictions, which means that 
something which may be subject to tax in one country is not subject to tax in another country, they want to make sure that their income is in the country that's not subject to tax. Now, that's a lot easier, obviously, in places like the British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands, where they don't tax practically anything. And often you find in, in those kinds of tax havens, which levy very like zero corporate taxes and, uh, and you know, exempt large amounts of personal income from taxes and so on, you, you, you find the way the government has to fund itself is through quite heavy consumption taxes on which fall on the local populace but uh, or very very poor uh, government services things just don't get funded at all but you can also have relatively high tax rates and certain rules which exempt certain forms of income from taxation which means that you you put money through those countries even though as a head, you know, as a as a kind of sticker price, the, the taxation rate is quite high. So Lux Luxembourg is a very good example of this. Luxembourg is widely regarded as a corporate tax haven, yet it has a corporate tax rate of thirty percent, uh, and that is because the way the Luxembourg tax system works, it allows people to move money in and out of the country without incurring that tax charge. Um, I did a story once uh, looking at a large deal um, between. ConocoPhillips and Perenco, two large oil companies, and they were trading an oil field in Vietnam. I think it was ConocoPhillips selling the oil field to uh, Perenco. Uh, and um, there are certain rules in the UK, which means when you sell an asset, the profit you make off the sale of that asset um, is not taxable. Um, and uh, in particular with companies. So if you were a company and you own shares, if you own 100% of the shares in a subsidiary company and you sell those shares, then you don't pay capital gains tax uh, on that sale. So this deal between a French oil company and a US oil company involving a Vietnamese oil field was actually structured through the UK, which again, doesn't have a 0% tax rate, because they were taking advantage of some rules in place that uh, allowed them a tax exemption on the particular trade that they were doing. Um, so yeah, so technically anywhere can be a tax haven with regard to others, but then with regard to another country, because they have a particular rule that someone's seeking to exploit or something. But obviously there are some countries which have, you know, a more favorable um, uh, environments than others and so you're looking at countries which have very low tax rates or zero percent tax rates uh, um, that have very um, a few rules on how um, money can move in and out of the country um, secrecy is is often a big thing that goes hand in hand with these um, uh, with these types of jurisdictions um, uh, and and so that's that's uh, those are the kinds of things you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So and then finally, George, it's not a small question, but it's our last question. I'd like to talk to you about the G7 negotiations. And I, I guess they reached an agreement in, in June of 2021 about how to how to have this sort of global minimum tax on corporations of 21. percent And I'm just wondering if you could talk about 
how the G7 can create a global minimum tax for corporations? Does it just hold for those seven countries? And how the process happened? It seems like a, a pretty big deal. And and what the implications of those of that deal? I mean, I'm asking you a lot here, but I guess the so what's the what's the so what of this? How yeah, did okay, it happen? So and what's the so what? <laughs> yeah, global minimum taxation. So the yeah. global minimum taxation is just a dreadfully named policy because it confuses everybody, and very few people understand what it really means. And as a result, people misunderstand what it means. Um, the global minimum tax policy is not. Uh, the G7 or anyone else insisting that every country in the world raise their domestic corporate tax rates to 15% or uh, whatever. It's actually the, the final agreement was 15%. 21% is what the US wanted mm. in the beginning, wow. um, but it got watered down by uh, people, including Ireland. Um, and, um, and I think you know each country well why is it each country so what the global minimum taxation does is say that for companies that are headquartered in your jurisdiction they will have a minimum tax rate of 15 percent wherever they uh, have wherever they operate in the world so if you think of large multinational companies and you know the big ones that have attracted so much attention and scrutiny over their tax affairs, like Google and Facebook and Apple and others, um, they are US headquartered multinational companies. They're based in the United States, um, yet they have operations throughout the world and they will have, uh, they will pay US federal and state taxes on the profits they make from customers in the United States, but they'll also have tax liabilities uh, in the UK, in France, in Germany, in Australia, in Japan, wherever they also do business. Uh, and what these companies have done is they've taken the cash that they've generated in their international operations and sucked it out of these countries, which are generally large developed countries that have governments that need funding and therefore have um, uh, significant tax rates and move them into tax havens where they face a very low tax rate. So what you've had with, uh, I, th I mean, I think I'm right from memory, but traditionally Google, about 60% of their profits were, was made outside of the United States. Whereas before 2017, they would have faced, I think, around a 30% uh, tax rate, uh, federal tax rate um, on their US profits, they were looking at something like three, four, five percent on their, um, maybe a bit higher, six percent on their non US profits because they were managing to get almost all of the profit that they made in all of their international operations into tax havens. And what the global minimum taxation policy says, does is say, is a government acting unilaterally to say, um, okay, for everybody who is headquartered in our jurisdiction, so the US government says this to Facebook and Google and others, we're US companies, you will not pay a tax rate of less than 15% in any jurisdiction in the world that you operate. Wow. And the difference is charged by us. So let's say Google sticks $10 billion of profit in Bermuda at 0% tax, 
the US government says, okay, we see that you've put $10 billion in, in Bermuda, and so we are going to tax that at 15% in order to top up your tax rate to ensure that everywhere in the world you pay a minimum of 15%. Now, that is the reason why the G7, or indeed any country acting alone, can introduce a global minimum tax rate without the acquiescence of the rest of the world and without needing everyone in the world to raise their tax rates up to 15% because you only need, you're only applying it to, to companies that are headquartered in your jurisdiction. And the importance of the G7 adopting this policy is that most multinationals are based in G7 countries. So at that point, you're covering most of the multinationals in the world. I see, sorry, George, just to interrupt. So we, we do that with the G7 because we don't want Google to move to France, for example. Yeah, and we want French companies not to rip off other people as well. <laughs> so it's, okay. it's just there's there's very there's not many jurisdictions outside of the G7 that have significant amounts of multinational companies. So if you get the G7, you're covering most of the world. And the reason the United States wouldn't want to go to 21%, even if Ireland said 15, is that we worry that our multinationals will relocate to Ireland? Yeah, I think that will be part of the worry. So before you, you know, this whole story about how you treat your international operations is a large part of the kind of corporate tax story that we've been looking at for the last 20, 30 years. So if you remember the big story, I guess, in uh, even I think in, in Clinton's time was um, corporate inversions. Um, but I think Obama introduced some uh, uh, things to restrict this, which was US companies that would buy uh, an Irish company in order to move their headquarters mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, and that was basically in order to lower the tax rate on their international operations or to allow them to to because the US tax system has always I mean every the, the, the tax system has always had a principle that jurisdictions can charge corporation tax uh, on the profits of companies headquartered in their jurisdiction, regardless of where those profits are made in the world. So the US can charge corporation tax on US companies, no matter where those profits are made as a worldwide taxation. And that's always been the case. So to some extent, this global minimum taxation stuff is not really not, not that new. And in the estates, it's really not new because you guys introduced it with um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. So there was already a policy called the Guilty, which is the Global Intangibles Low Income Tax, I think it's called. Um, but essentially that introduces a form of global minimum taxation. And that was already done in 2017. Uh, and so you see uh, post 2017, lots of large US tech companies moved intellectual property, which they were holding in Bermuda, to California. And Google did this. Google shut up their um, Bermudan subsidiaries and moved all the intellectual property, like their patents and trademarks and licenses, back to California. Um, because after this form of global minimum taxation was introduced, there wasn't really much point in keeping it in Bermuda. It was just a, basically a a PR disaster with no real upside because 
the US government just said, okay, well, we're putting a 15% floor. I think it's uh, under the, the 2017 reforms, it's like a 13.125% floor uh, on that income anyway. Um, and then if you bring it back to the States, you've got like a discount on that as well. So it ended up being the same thing. So George, this is the, the last question. It's a question that I've started asking, you know, all my guests, but what is the, and this can be about taxes or anything else. What is the thing right now in the world that is making you feel most optimistic? And I ask this question because often my dad listens to the show saying, geez, I feel worse than I did before. So um, what do you, what do you feel, what do you feel most optimistic about? God, I know, I'm a pretty, I think I'm with your dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're not allowed to, you know, so many of my guests now, since I started asking the question, are like, oh, nothing, there's nothing. Uh, okay, what am I most optimistic about? I mean, I think if you look at the the tax situation and, and the, these global tax, uh, there's, these global tax negotiations that have happened at the OECD and so on and uh, and the G7, they are deficient in many, many ways. Uh, and we've written about things like the way that income is distributed around the world and how um, it, definitely in terms of these, uh, the agreements that have been reached on global minimums, etc. you know, the US gets to tax huge amounts from the tech companies whilst very little is redistributed around the rest of the world. However, if we were thinking about, you know, 10 years ago, there were credible uh, voices and very powerful arguments. And I mean powerful in the sense that they were being, you know, listened to by serious people uh, to say, you know, we should get, we should just not tax corporations altogether. Uh, you know, corporations are just people. Yeah. And therefore, uh, if you get rid of taxes on corporations, you just you just give more money to people, and and that's a great thing without really thinking about the distributive consequences of that, which are awful. So you know that argument has been comprehensively lost. Uh, the idea, you know, at least in these agreements, in the G seven agreement and the OECD agreement and so on, you know, there is the implicit uh, uh, acknowledgement that we do need to tax corporations, we do need to tax corporations more than they're being taxed at the moment, that they're relatively undertaxed, uh, and that we need to tackle the abuse of the tax system um, through these uh, offshore avoidance structures. Um, and all of that's a good thing. Um, and, and I think as well, you know, at a time where we've all been living through this horrific uh, pandemic, um, you know, the value in public services and um, public finance and, uh, and, the, and seeing what the government can do uh, when it organizes itself effectively uh, to, to deliver public goods uh, has been demonstrated in a way, you know, through tragic circumstances, but in a way that hasn't been demonstrated and, and counteracts this kind of narrative that the government is always bad and needs to get out of the way uh, and therefore get rid of taxes, get rid of government uh, and so on. Um, so I think those things make me optimistic, even though they are things which in themselves are not, are not great to begin with. <laughs>